From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house ready to answer your questions on theology. If you've got one, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline <coughs> excuse me at ewtn.com i'm jack williams michael mccall producing the program your call screener is matt gubensky and ace mckay handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on youtube or facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Well, big doings here for you and for EWTN. Uh, next Wednesday, we'll have a little uh, commemoration at the 7 a.m. televised Mass, followed by a little reception for those of us who are on location here in Irondale, but... Um, the providence of God has moved in such a way as to have you be appointed to a pontifical academy, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's correct. Um, I've been appointed a little bit delayed by COVID in terms of the paperwork and in terms of the the uh, the, the formal giving over of it. Uh, so on Bishop Rika will come and, and deliver that on, on Wednesday at the end of the Mass. Uh, what it amounts to is it's the Pontifical Marian Academy International, which uh, was founded in the 19. The, the Marianum is a as a, a, a instrument or as a school, an academy of the of the uh, uh, of the church has been in existence a little bit longer and in some form even back a hundred or more years. But in the 1950s, Pope Pius XII established uh, the Pontifical Marian Academy. Uh, to carry forth the promotion of devotion and the theological understanding and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, and it's had uh, quite a few illustrious members. Most of the, the popes have been members. John Paul II was one. Um, there has, of course, many cardinals and so on in the course. But it's primarily uh, to be an academic uh, institution. Uh, there is the teaching of Mariology in Rome. Uh, that takes place at the university side of this, the Marianum. But there is also the, uh, the, the coming together of theologians to discuss topics, usually at uh, periodic congresses and in other gatherings, and in the rest of the time to promote in their own regions of the world the uh, devotion to and the study of Our Lady uh, as she fits into the plan of salvation. Uh, so it really is a tremendous honor, uh, a recognition uh, both of uh, uh, 
quite clearly uh, my role here at EWTN, but also uh, an understanding of Our Lady uh, in terms of the theology of that. Uh, and I had to present certain documents yeah, to so the Yeah, so describe the, the process of exactly, you know, what you had to do to demonstrate, you know, for, and I, I apologize for my ignorance, but to, uh, <laughs> to demonstrate your qualifications and just how the process kind of played out. Well, the, the normal means is by the presence of uh, a doctor of sacred theology. So an individual will have gotten that degree in Mariology or one of the other sacred sciences, and uh, that, that level of expertise represents to the Church, since the Holy See itself affirms those, uh, a qualification. And then the, the Council of the Marianum uh, receives from uh, other members uh, recommendations of new appointments, and uh, the, there was a particular need, of course. The Marianum also always needs to be building up its membership, and it's undertaking uh, undertaking some new uh, some new efforts in the church, such as being available to serve in the analyses of of uh, alleged apparitions and so on, and, and cl- such claims as they are around the world. So, on the basis of that, uh, individual individuals are proposed to their to the council, which then approves them, and then uh, the Marianum and a number of the other pontifical faculties are underneath the uh, Congregation for Culture and Education. And so that is then sent to, that information is then sent to the Congregation, or dicastery as they now are called, uh, which then uh, accepts it and, and, and validates that the, uh, the that the recommendation is is acceptable to the church, and so all of that was done some time ago, actually. Uh, but with COVID, I've not been able to go to Rome to uh, receive the formal giving over of the of the diploma, as it's called. Uh, that is the appointment to the uh, to the uh, Pontifical Marian Academy International, and so uh, I've participated uh, in the last Congress by Zoom and. Hopefully, be able to go to the next one, which I believe is in 2025, and uh, I will receive from uh, Bishop Rika the the instrument of that uh, appointment on uh, next Wednesday. So, uh, I, I think it's uh, it's it's certainly a great honor for me, and I think it's also an honor to uh, for EWTN, and hopefully there will be more honors uh, in the future. And I think recognition not only that you know the we are here working on behalf of the church and working for the uh, the honor of God, the honor of our Lord, and the honor of Our Lady, and so that that recognition I think has to be considered in in that particular light. Mariology, of course, some have always considered to be a sort of incidental theology, but I think one of the Things that has occurred in the last four or five hundred years, with the uh, certainly with the Reformation, is to bring to attention the need for a solid theological explanation of what the Church actually believes about Our Lady. The Church believes a great many things in many areas, dealing with the sacraments, dealing dogmatically and in different ways, and she holds that belief in peace until it's challenged. And so. Uh, the church is always being challenged to develop and go deeper, to fulfill and to 
to actuate, if you will, that promise of Christ to the apostles to be to lead them into all truth, that the Holy Spirit would do that. And so certainly the development of Mariology over the recent centuries, and particularly in the last century, has has been part of that uh, part of that effort to understand it more deeply, to be explained it better to our to our uh, non-Catholic brethren, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, but also to bring to light the th- reasons why the Church honors Our Lady so much. And the principal honor, of course, is from all eternity in determining the Incarnation, God the Father also determined she from whom the Incarnation would take place. So it wasn't a casual judgment on God's part or a casual act of wisdom, divine wisdom, but deeply founded in the communion of the Trinity itself, that in Christ and through Christ would be established the communion of the Church with the relationship of the communion of love between mother and son on the human level uh, be the best representation of that. So she is the faithful bride who did always the Father's will, who said yes to whatever he proposed to her. And so she set forth as an example. And Mariology is basically a development of that insight and of that relationship and of the fact that without the Incarnation, there would be no Mariology. Without Christ, there would be no basis to, to appreciate, understand more deeply uh, Mary's role in history. But in Christ, we have clearly the basis of doing that. And so Mariology seeks to uh, advance that understanding, to connect it with other realities and truths of the Church regarding the faith, the sacraments. Certainly Mary's role in the sacraments, you need only listen to the prayers of the Mass to see the ways in which the Church integrates her faith in Mary and her role with the Eucharistic liturgy and with Christ's role himself in the redemption. So uh, all of that is bound up in that, and it's a great opportunity for, for me to make whatever contribution I can through radio or TV, uh, but even uh, in scholarship as the opportunity presents itself, which these days, Jack, as you know, we're pretty busy around here. That's That can be a hard hard thing to find the time to do. Listen, I've been you've been here for... What quarter of a century now? <laughs> a little bit more, even. Yeah, twenty-eight yeah. years next yeah, week. Yeah, and I have had relationships with the network for over twenty years, and I don't remember a more, a busier, three or four week period than we're in the middle of right now. <laughs> no, it's been literally crazy, either in the preparation for family celebration or the activities of production and the airing things we're airing. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing for the month of August, August rather. Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Sidner. It's illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps children reflect on God's blessings in their lives, and the captivating images convey the importance of faith 
and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story, a new book from EWTN Publishing, available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. We've been waiting a week for this question. Colin Donovan. Ronald in Pennsylvania has persevered. He's watching us <laughs> on YouTube. And, Ronald, you finally get to ask your question of Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. <laughs> yes. He said hi, Colin. Yeah, yeah hi there. Hi, Ronald. Uh, yeah, we saw you at the end of last week, and I thought, oh, no. Here's Ronald, and we didn't get to him. I was asked you two weeks ago. Was it two weeks ago? Well, then, you're even more persistent than we thought. <laughs> anyway, what's your question? I got a question about Jesus being in the line of the Vita kingdom. Mm-hmm. I heard that, that for Jesus being in the line of King David, it has to be through a physical father. And... And St. Joseph and the Virgin Mother in the line of King David, you explain what this means? Yeah. Uh, the general supposition, because uh, there was a tendency to marry within, within the tribe, is that Elizabeth, of course, married Zachary, and so that Elizabeth was of the priestly line, and she was the cousin of Our Lady, and therefore Mary herself was of the priestly line, not the Davidic, of course. But it's been also suggested that she was as well. But the more important thing here is that by Jewish law, it's quite clear, and we even have this expression, that he was the, the son of Joseph, as was thought. Because by whether by adoption or the context of them having been betrothed, which in Judaism was the first step of marriage, he was Jesus was to the world, in to the law, in every sense, the son of uh, the son of Joseph. So that's the basis of him being of the Davidic line. Certainly, that was undisputed by Joseph. He didn't understand, but he accepted the word of the angel and he took Mary as his wife, who already made his wife, of course, by the by the betrothal they had had. They were in that period where getting to know each other better without living together, they would have the coming together in the, uh, in the home of Joseph after the end of that period. And they were in that when uh, the incarnation took place. So by any definition, uh, earthly legal definition, he was the son of Joseph, and that's what uh, made him in the, line, in the line of David. And he was uh, therefore the heir of, the heir of David. God bless you, Ronald. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you, rather, on this Friday. 833-288-3986. Forrester's watching us on YouTube, and he says, Mr. Donovan, would you recommend any resources for learning about Molinism versus Thomism in regards to predestination? Yeah, Questions like that are usually ones that, having been decided by the church, best let lay. I can I can only think of one source where I first encountered that. I believe it's in Ott's, Ott's, uh, Dr. Ludwig Ott's Dogmatics, where he's discussing the dogmatic history of, of that teaching. 
And he also addresses some of the precursors as well as some of the arguments against. That might be one place to start. Uh, the other one would be a generic reference, and that would be the, the Catholic Encyclopedia, which the older version is online at newadvent.org. Uh, you can uh, look up uh, Molinism, and then that will give you, of course, the, obviously the treatment of how that, was, uh, how that idea was dealt with. So that would, be, that would be the place to start. I don't know of anything specific on this subject. It's sort of a dead issue. Uh, you might call it an archaeological issue in the theological sense of it because you would have to go back and, and, and do a little archaeological work to find out the principal arguments for and against. And I think ought would be the best place to maybe see where the beginnings of that. Pick up the phone and give us a call if you've got a question for our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. James writes in, can you explain the phrase, God from God, light from light, in the Creed? That's referring to the one in substance, the other word that comes along in there, consubstantial. Uh, the original form in English was one in being, and in order to conform to the Latin, but also to be more closely faithful to the philosophical idea behind uh, the Latin, it was changed back to consubstantial, meaning the divinity is all of one substance. Jack and I are of different substances. His, his combination of his soul and his material body and mine are different, Therefore, our beings are distinct. We are individualized beings having human nature, instances of human nature, if you will. The three persons are not instances of the divinity in that individual sense. And so you get the idea of the what is called more, by theologians at least, the procession of the persons in the idea that light from light, true God from true God, that this illustrates the fact that God is generating God. And we don't say that, that uh, we don't say that giving birth or anything like that, but what, the like is coming from like there. And so the Father, as traditionally be explained by Augustine and others, would be that the Father, the word of the Father is the second person. John the Apostle also gives that. And the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son, differently expressed in East and West uh, in terms of the language. Uh, we say from the Father and the Son. The East would be more inclined to say from the Father through the Son and then obviously back to the Father. So the essential thing there is the expression of the single divine substance. There is only one God against the Jewish conception of what Catholics believe and the Muslim conception. One of the few things those two uh, monotheistic religions agree on is that Christians don't have a pure monotheism because they can't help but think we believe in three gods. But the creed makes clear we believe in one God who's in his divine life in a mysterious way has this procession of the divine nature, which is three persons. And that's an important uh, distinction that 
we have and use to explain. And of course, that developed in the early centuries precisely to explain what the church's faith was and why it is one God and three persons and not three gods and three persons. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. All right, Mr. Pontifical Marian Academy. Kevin wants to know, can you explain to me the perpetual virginity of Mary and why it is important? It's important on many levels. Uh, As a truth, it's accepted by the Church. It's out of the apostolic tradition, eventually defined against those who claimed otherwise. And I think it's important. The, The virginity, of course, we understand from the point of view of the birth of Christ. You know, the virgin shall conceive... And so Christ is born of a virgin, but that she remained a virgin is maybe less clear to people. But I think of it, if you, if you look at it in the language and symbology of, of Scripture, what is it that was most clear in Judaism? The absolute sanctity of the temple, and within the temple, the Holy of Holies. So much so that when they carried the ark about, one of the priests who was called to serve in the holy, and perhaps even in the holy of holies if he ever were high priest, touched the ark to steady it and was struck dead to show how pure and how symbolic, merely symbolic, the ark of the covenant was because it held the word of God in stone. Now think forward a thousand years to the Word of God in flesh in the womb of his mother. How holy must that womb be to God the Father? That from, as I said at the beginning, from all eternity, he chose this woman to give birth to this man for the sake of the salvation of all men. That's a holy place. Now, we get hints of that because the Scripture get, isn't there to give us a theology lesson, but we get hints of that in the, in, the, uh, in the words of the archangel. Hail, full of grace. Hail, highly favored is one way it's been tra- translated. But even if you took it that way, highly favored over all women, blessed among all women. That's a Eve, lot of women. That's a lot of women, <laughs> including Eve. Made purely from the beginning, in the holiness of God himself. And yet Mary is more blessed even than our mother Eve, because she is the mother of the Redeemer. So those simple thoughts, I think, can get us on the way to understanding why the virginity we ascribe to her, both in conceiving Christ, we ascribe to her throughout her life. And imagine Joseph tutored, by the scriptures, thinking he could touch in that way this mother? I think not. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. 
If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And remember, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family, St. Gabriel Radio in Columbus and Portsmouth, Ohio, is celebrating 18 years with EWTN Radio. Congratulations to our good friend Bill Messerly and his whole team at St. Gabriel Radio from all of us at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Renee is in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Renee, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Mr. Donovan. Thank you so much for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I have a I have a question about admonishing the sinner. Are there certain questions that she, we should ask ourselves before we attempt to admonish a sinner? Mm-hmm. Like a set of criteria that sure. obviously we can't go around admonishing all sinners. <laughs> I was going to say, Renee, I said I was sorry for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> now, now she's going to get it on the air. <laughs> Well, I mean, there is, uh, and our Lord, of course, gives us this in the scriptures, when he, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, when he says that you know, uh, somebody offends you personally. Of course, this I think is applied also to uh, to this case, and that is you uh, you go to them individually. Uh, then you maybe take another person who uh, has that same same opinion, and then you bring it to the church. And that's, that's a good rule. Now, not every situation is that going to apply exactly. I think for most people, I think we understand that you're going up and down the street and you see some stranger who you have incidental knowledge of their behavior or bent or whatever it is, you're not going to go up to them and say, you know, straighten up or you're going to hell. No, it's whether it's the stranger or whether it's a family member, um, you should hopefully always be disposed by by a prayer life so that we're not making fanciful decisions regarding our own knowledge and importance and insights into the souls of others and that we know enough we know them well enough to be able to have traction if you will there's no point in giving vain fraternal correction on on any particular point now, people have, will, will say, well, you know, the prophets went around and they made these general admonitions. 
and in fact, it is fine. I mean, people on rare radio and TV were, were constantly telling others, you know, this is what the Lord expects of you. We're just not pigeonholing some individual and getting in their face and telling them exactly what it is, unless we have some hope that there will be that there will be a positive response. Isaiah and Jeremiah are one thing. Nathan's a whole different animal. Exactly. You know, and the the point there is that there there's a there there's a an area of moral theology that's very confusing to people and they usually get it very confused. And that's epikaia. And that is those things that we should do when all other things are telling us we ought not to do them. And the general rule on that is, as is, is, uh, Albert the Great and others postulated, is the just man who has already done prudently all the things that he must do in his moral life, he's in a position to know what goes beyond the normal prudence and do it here. That's the gift of counsel to do that. So when you hear about the saints or a mother Angelica deciding, oh, I'm going to you know, build a TV network in my garage, <laughs> Everybody else is slapping their forehead and saying, what's wrong with this nun? And it's, it's like that. The gift of counsel inspired her, I'm sure, that this was the Lord asking her to do that. Now, we're not going to have any you know, apparitions or great uh, lights to make us choose things. So, therefore, we rely on prudence. And maybe someday, if we're prudent all the time, we'll start having a more clear and even a prophetic insight into how to deal with situations. But the normal person should go by those prudential rules. Know who you're going to uh, correct. Know, use a method that might have some beneficial, you know, traction on them, if you will, that they might argue or accept or at least go and take it away. And also accept that you're not going to convince people and our egos shouldn't be attached but you could be just planting the seed and somebody else will come along and water it and the Lord eventually will take care of it. And remember this point. That person has a guardian angel. You're not the only one talking in their head. They can't maybe know that the angel is trying to lead them and help them to see the light. But he will try to build on what you say to them, even if it's not fruitful in every case. And for some people, after a very long path, it will prove proves you f- fruitful, and for others, they've so deadened their 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 hearts to God's grace that uh, it will not. And you can't decide those cases, but they will have decided them themselves. In in my experience, sometimes messages might sink in a little better if they're presented as part of a hypothetical situation. As part as I mean, what do you think about that? As opposed to right, directly. Yeah confronting somebody about their own situation. Right, and I think our apologetic shows and programs with people who have actually done that very well and successfully are, are good, uh, you know, good things to listen to maybe for these co- sort of tactical approaches to people. How's that, Renee? Okay, that's great. Um, so prudence and counsel? Pray for the gift of counsel. Okay. Every, when every Pentecost comes around, do that novena, and one of the things you're praying for is that particular of the seven gifts. But you can do it any time. <laughs> God that bless you, Renee. That has been so helpful. Thank All you. Right. God bless yeah. you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. You know, we have a pretty good idea of what it means to exercise prudence all the time. If you're wondering whether counsel is 
is acting in a certain situation, it's probably not. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to. I, th- I think I think if you look at the lives of the saints, you ask yourself, uh, I use this example because it always strikes me. Um, oh, now I can't, the name flies out of my uh, saint, the one who cro- walked across the Straits of Messina. Anyway, so you, you, when you hear about the saints doing miracles or raising the dead or doing any of these things, you wonder what kind of discourse is going on in their head that the words would come out of their month, mouth, rise. Now, with this lore, our Lord is pretty clear. And so you can understand how God would know, although he, for our benefit, as he said, you know, he prayed, prayed aloud to the Father. But you wonder what's going on in their head. And I think I think there's a growth in the spiritual Francis life. Francis of Paola. That's it. Of Paola. Francis of Paola. Who they were building Paola. his monastery. This is and radio. His, we talk Paola here. Do, do you talk Paola? Okay. <laughs> I think that had a sorry history to it, if I'm it not did, mistaken. <laughs> but There were not many saints involved in that no. situation. <laughs> but a rock was rolling down the hill about to crush some workmen, and he ordered the rock to stop, and it stood there till the uh, workmen got out of the way, and then when... They were out of the way. It continued on down the hill. In another case, they wouldn't, uh, the boatman, it was, I guess, tired or lazy or had enough money for the day, he wouldn't take him across the Straits of Messina. So he started walking across the Straits of Messina. And there are many cases. You know, think of Joseph Cupertino flying through the air. Of course, that was somewhat involuntary. He'd go into ecstasy and off he would go. But how the, the psychology of how people understand that point when then the gifts of the Holy Spirit are fully engaged in, in the person. Like you say, you're not going to know it. God doesn't want you to know it. But the church, when it's looking at the, you, this mysterious phrase, the heroic virtue that m- allows a person to be declared venerable, is asking a natural question. Has this person exercised heroic virtue across the board? Because it answers the supernatural question, which you can't prove and demonstrate because it's supernatural. That the Holy Spirit, the gifts which perfect the virtues, are operating in that individual. That's the holiness part. So you can't ever get at it directly, but the church goes at it. And if the virtues are there, as the saying goes, you know, perfection, all boats, all the ocean lifts, all, all boats bo- rise. Yeah. All boats rise. And so the person who perfects a virtue generally perfects them all and most recommend. Well, go for humility because if you ever perfect that one, you'll be a saint. But you can't know you're a saint necessarily, but God will know and the church may eventually know too. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Kit in Campton, New Hampshire. uh, Watching us rather on YouTube today. A first-time caller. Kit, you are on with Colin Donovan. Well, hi. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I have a question about the status of the Anglican Ordinariate. Um, I understand it as a provision to incorporate uh, people from an Anglican background into the Catholic Church as uh, you know, as a whole community. In mm-hmm. some cases, my question is: Can um, churches that came out of that provision, can churches emerge from them? 
can the Anglican ordinariate, for example, um, can a young man who grew up in such a church be called to become a priest in the Anglican ordinariate? Can, is there a seminary for them? Uh, how, in other words, does sure, the, what's the ordinariate status of com- it? Yeah. yeah, compare to, uh, say, a Byzantine church community sure. that's in communion yeah. with Rome. Uh, no, the ordinariate, and should any other provisions like that be made in the future for different groups, uh, individual priests are brought in from uh, Lutheranism and others, but brought directly, brought into the Roman Rite as the Roman Rite. This is the Roman Rite with this uh, ordinariate faculty or concession, I guess you would call it. So it's part of the they, Roman they Rite. They have a bishop, however. Well, not a bishop, but I think that I think it goes by a different name. Equivalent of a bishop, I think. Oh. I think he goes by bishop. Does he? Okay. Uh, well, in any case, that makes it, uh, but it's still part of the Roman rite. So I'm not sure how that's going to be dealt with in the case of seminarians. Obviously, if you are raised in an ordinary parish, I think you have a glare, very clear path to uh, uh, to later serving in, in that. But there's no... As far as I know, there is no particular ordinary at seminary. So if Father Chalmers were here, we could ask him the question, since he is an ordinary priest who actually uh, now works in full service of of our diocese here in Birmingham. Yes, uh, it's Bishop Stephen Lopes is the the bishop there, and I think, and again, I'm not 100% sure either. Maybe we'll do a little research and discuss this at the beginning of next Friday's uh, open line, but I think they have a seminary too. But I'm not, I'm not entirely right. positive. And on that. and these things wax and wane because the idea is that they have a cross territorial jurisdiction to their own people, to their own clergy and their laity. Uh, in the same way, but in a different, the prelature of Opus Dei for many decades had, or at least several, since John Paul instituted the prelature, they had a bishop. But with Francis, it's they have a prelate but he's not necessarily a bishop. So th- I think that will wax and ra- wane probably as the, you know, the, the, as each pope decides it would be the best way to do that. And that will change with time. I think the hope of many is uh, the, the great promise that the Anglican Church itself would, be, uh, uh, would come into union with Rome. And I know there seems little sign that that can happen in any corporate way. At one time there was the belief that possibly by, by agreement and other things, but they have moved, the Anglican Communion has moved further away from Rome rather than closer since those Arxic and other agreements that were efforts to add ecumenism between Catholicism and Anglicanism uh, uh, were first, first written. Does that help at all, Kit? Yes, thank you. And tune in next Friday. Maybe we'll have a little discussion at the beginning of the program. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Jeannie is another first-time caller driving through the great state of Nebraska, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeannie, you are on with Colin Donovan. Yes. Hi, Colin. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if when we pass, if everybody has to uh, go through purgatory, or if you do a reconciliation and good acts of contrition just prior to your death, if you can bypass that. Yeah. Well, 
Those who go to purgatory are those who still owe some temporal punishment for their sins. Venial sin has no eternal punishment attached to it. Yes, there is some element of offense to God, but not in the way that mortal sin does, the, the, the serious sins. So Jesus, he came, he came to deliver us from all sin, but principally to reconcile those who had committed grave offenses to God, because there was no way until the new covenant uh, to do that, really. And not certainly uh, outside of Judaism, the Gentiles didn't have that possibility. So when we commit venial sin, if you just take a look sort of uh, archaeologically, as we were saying earlier, what happens when we sin, we do something, our motive may be in part, or maybe even wholly, that we love ourselves more than God. Well, that's offensive. Or that we have some, you know, even more horrible motive than that. And yet we repent. Does that mean that all of the harm to ourselves and to others through our actions in committing that mortal sin are suddenly washed away and we have no responsibility for it? The lesson of the Gospels gospels is, no, we don't. Jesus came to perfect justice, not to do away with it. So that which we could not do, reconciliation with the Father over those things which breaks our relationship with him, mortal sin, even though in confession our venial sins are also forgiven, there are, and even with mortal sin, there is, if you will, the temporal, the in time, the earthly consequences of that. You can speak sort of broadly and vaguely of the order of justice in the world. Often the rock and the pond analogy is used that when we sin, we you know, there's circles and circles of effect from it. We give bad example to others, and they go off and, oh, well, you know, Jack Williams, he works for EWTN, and he did it. It must be all right. So there's all kinds of ways in which we affect others uh, through scandal, uh, in which we f- provide even physical harm to them. We, we, we ruin their good name. We're forgiven, and we try to reconcile with them and repair their good name, but maybe they've since died and we're not able to repair their good name. Post Posthumously, yes, maybe. So the idea is simply that there are things other than our relationship with God, our relationship with each other in society, with family, and so on, that is affect the effects of sin. We have an obligation to repair that. Now, the Lord repairs it. If we came out, and this is something to strive for in every confession— when we go into confession, there is there the priestly power to absolve us of our sins and of the temporal punishment, not by any additional words the priest, but inherent in the absolution, according to our degree of contrition. We can have contrition that is adequate for confession because Christ instituted it for imperfect people whose motives are not always pure, but not adequate to actually, you know, I sort of got a little bit out of that sin, or I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I did it, but, you know, not too enthused about repairing the damage. It can be all kinds of, of things that we are harboring. And as a consequence of that, the temporal punishment remains. Now, it could be, if our contrition were adequate, it could be removed as well. 
So the church gives us indulgences, which she calls an extension of the sacrament of penance, because now we're sort of focused in on this task of repairing and getting doing away with our temporal punishment. The, the saints who did great penances understood that they offended God and maybe and they were forgiven. Saint uh, uh, Mary Magdalene, for example. But yet she spent the rest of her life doing penance, even though God himself told her that she was forgiven. Because she understood the great harm that is done by sin. And so she lived the rest of her life repairing that harm. Probably got rid of hers very quickly and, and was doing it for the sake of other souls. So looking at the justice element, we can't probably know. But at the hour of our death, when we're sick and we know that time is coming, obviously good confessions, prayer, offering our suffering for our uh, forgiveness of our sins, of our temporal punishment, and the, the apostolic pardon that a priest will give on that occasion, which is a plenary indulgence, if we're disposed, that will also take care of it. But even absolved venial sins, as I've tried to explain, can have the, this residue or this consequence of remaining temporal punishment. That's what we should be trying to get away, get rid of in life. Because many of the saints have attested that it's much easier to get rid of it in life through our prayer and penance than to suffer even a moment in purgatory. But that, if we don't do it, we will be purified in purgatory because nothing impure will enter into the heavenly Jerusalem as the Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation. You know, some theologians have speculated that doing a radio show every week with me may suffice to cover all of your purgatorial responsibilities. I fly out of here walking on clouds every week, Jack, <laughs> spending time with you. Maybe thanks. that's not the reason, but... <laughs> thanks so much, Jeannie. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN. Make your plans for a full weekend of fun and spiritual encouragement at this year's EWTN Free Family Celebration taking place Friday, October, uh, August 25th in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, if you come in that Friday, you can visit the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, attend Holy Mass, tour the Shrine, and much more. And then it's off to the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex on Saturday, August 26th for all the wonderful family celebration events culminating with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration to find out more and to register. And it's all, this always gets Colin's attention, it's free. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We could probably squeeze in one more call at 833-288-3986. Here's a follow-up for you, Colin. You just kind of covered this. In fact, you covered it so well, I'm not even going to ask the question. We'll, well you know, it. I have a follow-up to the mention of the family celebration. Okay, go ahead. We don't advertise the possibility, but there may be people who can't spend any time at the, uh, at the BJCC in the concert hall where our uh, family celebration is going on, but there's a possibility of accompanying in the procession. We expect the mass to be over about 6:30. We will be passing through the central little plaza there at the BJCC for people who know that area there in front between the concert hall and the Legacy Arena and the North Exhibition Hall, and out into 22nd Street and down to St. Paul's. So there are opportunities to either 
on the sidewalk or even to come having not participated and participate in the procession. So those are those is something that anybody could do. Um, Franklin would like to know, as a newly religious person, how can I get closer to God? Pray. Study God. Learn about God. Catechism. Holy books. The lives of the saints. And then go pray and put into practice what you've learned. Because it isn't knowledge that saves. It's a relationship with our Lord. Receive the sacraments well certainly is a big part of that. In fact, the greatest part of it. Many theologians have said, including St. Thomas, that when we receive an increase of sanctifying grace ordinarily for the good works that we do, for our closeness and attentiveness to the will of God, it comes to us at the time of communion when Christ is personally present in us. So if we do those things, it, it's, like, it's like a little dance or like even the procession of the persons in the Trinity. We're growing you know, it's been called Jacob's Ladder, using the example from the Old Testament, or it could be called a spiral staircase by which we grow in our knowledge and our love of God, and we, that leads us to greater knowledge and greater love, because he who you know is you're going to love. So get to know him, get to know him through reading, get to know him through prayer, uh, because that'll be the greatest help to your sanctification. And you can also get to know him by listening to your EWTN. brothers and sisters. Exactly, by listening and watching Listen to EWTN. EWTN, but also doing, uh, you know, kind turns right. for your fellow man. Huh? Exercising your faith, hope, and love in uh, with others, as the Pope is constantly reminding us, as he's doing to the young people in uh, Portugal this week. Yep, have you seen any of the coverage so far? Uh, I have. Uh, both what has uh, struck you, anything in particular? Well, I... I the, They're the, loud this year. I've noticed they, that. They are, and the... You know, when you see large crowds, you know, you think of riots and stuff in the United States in our big cities. Uh, but it, you, I see the same dynamic here, and that is that all hundreds of thousands of young people peacefully, lovingly spreading the life of Christ in Portugal versus what other young people are doing across the world through violence and sin and dissipation of life. What a contrast between the exercise of faith, hope, and love and the lack of it. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Have a great weekend. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.